Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast for People of Hope Church. To learn more about our ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, visit peopleofhope.church. Dear God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what Pastor Kyle has to say to us this morning and that we would leave this place feeling encouraged and ready to continue on with this new year with a heart of hope and faithfulness that you can do big things. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We are rocking along through the book of Colossians. This is Paul's letter to a church that he had never visited. It was actually began by um, one of the disciples of Paul, a man named Epaphras. Paul is in prison in Rome, as best we understand, as, as much as we can kind of dig into understanding the timeline of things. And Epaphras has now come back to Rome, where Paul is under house arrest, and he's given him word. He's given him uh, sort of a report on what's going on in the church of Colossae, this little town on the Lycos River in modern-day Turkey, which is sort of about 10 miles away from a really big town called Laodicea. Laodicea is one of those uh, churches that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, Laodicea, there's actually um, a lot more going on in the city of Laodicea, and Paul has a lot of love for them and a lot of the love for the church of Colossae. And based on Epaphras and what he's told them that's going on in the church of Colossae, Paul writes this letter. And last week we dug in the chapter one, and here we are in the chapter two. And as I've been telling you, uh, we're attempting to cover the book of Colossians in four weeks, and that is really hard to do because we could spend a year in the book of Colossians and still have a lot to chew on. So what we're doing is, is I'm trying to listen to the Lord, I'm trying to take one section of each chapter each week and teach you that on a Sunday morning, and then just as a supplement for you, as a, as a as trying to be a blessing to you, um, we've created a YouTube channel where throughout the week I'm going to add a couple of other segments of the chapter on that giving week. So last week we taught chapter one, and during the week we posted a couple of videos with some other sections of that chapter, and we'll try to do uh, the same this week. This morning we're starting in verse 13, uh, Colossians chapter. 2, starting in verse 13. If you hopefully got that in your Bible or on your device, and if not, um, you're welcome to follow along um, here on the screen. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse um, 13. And Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, time out (laughs) right there. What a massive summation of the gospel. When we were dead, not when we had cleaned ourselves up, but when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, when we were of no use to God, he loved us and he gave his son Jesus for us. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, Christ died for us. 
This summation of the gospel says we were dead and in our flesh and God made us alive with Christ. And so I want to tell you again um, that God didn't just sort of say, hey, I'll give you a ticket to heaven someday. God has already made you alive in Christ. So if you have believed in Jesus, if you are trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are trusting Jesus for the promise of heaven, if you have become a disciple of Jesus, God has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life, and you're alive right now in Christ. Not because you've cleaned yourself up, but because the power of God is bigger than the power of sin in your life. And please believe that down deep. Not just for the truth that God is, is bigger and more powerful than the power of sin, for the overall sin in your life, the sin that would keep you out of heaven in all eternity, but also for the sin in your life yesterday, and the sin in your life this morning, and the sin in your life that's coming all week this week. Our God is bigger than the sin that haunts you, that torments you, that continues to knock the wind out of you, the sin that calls to you, the sin that brings empty promises and tricks and deceives you. Our God is bigger than that sin. And our God has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life so that if you're in Christ Jesus, you have the promise of eternal life in heaven, that overall salvation, yes, but also our God can set you free from the sin that could haunt you this week. That's who our God is. And that's only possible because of what Jesus has done. God didn't just say, oh, sin wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, never mind about the consequences of sin. Sin was paid for with the life of the Son of God. He gave his blood. And we just sang about it. Jesus paid it all. The cross became this altar of sacrifice. And Jesus, when he shed his blood, his perfect blood, because Jesus never sinned, God accepted that as covering for the guilt of your sin and of mine. Sin had left a crimson stain in your world and in mine. But Jesus has washed it white as snow. Paul gets a little bit more specific here in the text, and he says, uh, he gives us a little bit of an illustration to help us get our hearts and minds around us. Verse 14, he says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, there was a bill. You get bills in the mail, you get bills in your email uh, for your online payments, you get bills at the end of a meal at a table. Great, glad you enjoyed the food. Here's the bill. There was a certificate of debt with God for, a, for, for sinning. And we could never pay the debt. We could never pay it. There aren't enough good deeds to cancel it. There's not enough money you can give to good causes or to the church to cancel it. The only thing that canceled our debt is the sacrifice of Jesus. So look at the illustration that Paul uses here in verse 14. He says, having canceled the, the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, and Paul says it's so, it's so visual. He's nailed it to the cross. 
So those of you who are, who are still living under this cloud of shame for what you have in your past, for your sinfulness, lay that down because your debt to God has been nailed to the cross and it's not yours anymore. If you're in Christ Jesus today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've believed in Jesus, you do not owe God anything for the sins of your past. They have been paid in full and your bill has been nailed to the cross. Hallelujah. He's nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, and in the same swing, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In that moment on the cross, friends, Jesus broke the supernatural power of sin. The enemy can come into your ear and he can whisper lies and he can kind of point to you the things that shine but hold no promise, the things that that sort of shimmer and glimmer but are actually just false and empty and the enemy can whisper in your ear, give yourself yourself to them. Spend your life on those things. Go ahead, it'll feel good. Go ahead, nobody will know. He can whisper all those things but it is then your choice to either say yes or no to his temptation. And it's only a choice because Jesus defeated the enemy. Before Jesus defeated the enemy, before you became a Christian, you were, the Bible says, enslaved to sin. There was a hold on you, a grip on your life that that sin had that you were absolutely incapable of breaking away from. But when Jesus died, he nailed your debt to the cross. It's paid in full. And he broke the power of sin over your life. And I love Paul's visual here. Not only did he defeat and disarm the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over the cross. We don't have time to dig into all this language here, but this is where just Jesus defeated and routed them and stood gloriously with the wind blowing in his hair. And a whole lot of other things. The cross was not a defeat, it was a triumph. We're a young church, we're five months old, but let it be said of us that we never, ever get tired of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that we were dead and helpless, but God loved us and gave his son for us, but Jesus paid it in full, and now we're alive, and now we are free, and now we are sons and daughters, and now we have hope. The debt's been paid, The grip has been broken. In the next verse here, verse 16, Paul says, therefore, that therefore is really important because everything we just talked about is what's kind of stacked up right there. And now Paul goes, in light of that, in light of the fact that your debt has been paid in full, in light of the fact that the the powers have been defeated and disarmed and Jesus has triumphed, in light of that, therefore, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink 
or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Because these are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. Time out. Paul says, in light of all these things, don't let anybody judge you. One of the translations says, don't let anybody rob you of the freedom Jesus paid for. Don't let anybody judge you for, for you should not eat, you should not drink. Don't let anybody come upon you with man-made human regulations to make you more spiritual. You should follow the Bible, not the wisdom of men. And you should follow the Bible and not the let's be restrictive, let's be boycotters. And let's get into everybody else's business and tell them how we think they should parent their kids and how we think they should conduct their lives and what kind of food we think they should eat and what kind of drink they they should drink. Don't let anybody come upon you and say, oh, you want to be saved? Then you need to live a certain kind of life. You need to only eat a certain kind of things and don't eat a certain kind of things. Oh, you want to be saved? You want to be close to God? Oh, then you need to not drink certain things or you need to definitely drink certain things. You need to kind of go on these things. Hopefully nobody is saying kale. Isn't kale the worst? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's a result of the fall. Something happened to some lettuce somewhere and it just cracked and sorry, that's not in my notes. It's just true. It's just true. (laughs) Paul says, don't let anybody judge you then by what you eat or drink. See, evidently, Epaphras brought word back to Paul that in the Colossae church, in the church, among the believers, there were some who were saying, like, oh, we figured out how to be really spiritual. You eat eat cake? We, We don't eat desserts. We feel like that that would be we, we just want to really deny ourselves and we, we want to really show God that we're not going to get on all the pleasures of this world. The world's caught up in sugar. We're going to avoid sugar. Uh, didn't God make sugar? Well, that's beside the point. No, it's not. <laughs> God made sugar and it's a good thing. Your body needs sugar, a little bit of sugar. There is a problem though when we overindulge on a good thing. But evidently in Colossae, there were some believers who were saying, oh, you eat sugar? It would be the equivalent of somebody like saying, oh, I hear hear you talking about the latest thing on Netflix. Cool. We don't don't do TV. I can't believe you do TV. I thought you were a Christian. We we don't have Netflix because we're not going to, we're not going to get into the stream and be caught off in the swift current of entertainment on this world. And you shouldn't either. Evidently in this church, there were folks coming to each other going, hey, we figured out how you should treat your kids. And this is how you should discipline them. And this is how their routine should go. And this is when their bedtime should be. And this is the way that you should deal with them. And oh my goodness, you use cloth diapers? Great, you must be saved. All of those human rules that were not just about preference and life, but they were connected back to spirituality. You'll be more spiritual if you do it this way. You'll be more spiritual if you do it this way. Oh, you can't be saved unless you live with these kind of restrictions. There was actually something called asceticism. 
And asceticism is this belief that, that you can um, reach a higher level of spiritual, uh, spiritual life by extreme self-denial. We're, we're not going to do sugar. We're not going to do TV. Uh, we're not going to take walks in nature. Uh, we're not going to glorify the sunset. We're going to deny ourselves. Asceticism was this thought that by my activity, I could be better spiritually. That's false. Hello? Only God's word, God's spirit grows us spiritually. Your human activity in response to God as he leads you has an effect But spiritual growth and spiritual depth only comes by the hand of God. And evidently, this is a big deal in this young church. And I've been in churches before where that parenting thing reared its ugly head. There was a certain book. There was a certain leader. And if you were really spiritual, you parented your kids in a certain way. And if you didn't, then we prayed for you. And oh my goodness, how distracted and off course was then the church. Because we were in each other's business. I don't know about you, but I have enough trouble figuring out the boundaries of my own freedom without meddling into somebody else's life. And in our church, we want freedom in Jesus. To be what's in the air with a call for each of us to honor God with our bodies and to honor God with our minds, to honor God with our money, and to honor God with our time. And those honorings will help govern our freedom. But evidently in this church, there were some people who just had it all figured out. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. One of the elements in there was not just some crazy people who were saying, hey, don't eat this and don't drink that and don't enjoy that and all those kind of things. Be sad. That's more spiritual. And in addition to that, there was also an element of Judaism where Jews were saying, okay, you're a new believer in Jesus, great. Now you have to keep all the festivals from the Old Testament if you want to be saved. And now you have to uh, also keep all the Sabbath day stuff if you want to be saved. And they've forgotten the fact, didn't Jesus tell us that the Sabbath was made for us? We weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is is God's gift to us. It's not not a a, a law by which we, we become saved. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at this with me. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. So let me be very careful as I teach this this morning about the Sabbath day. You and I should practice Sabbath. That's a healthy rhythm of life. You rest in order to work again. You're not resting to be lazy. You're not resting to overindulge and overrest. You're resting in order to work again. God made our bodies that way. That's why we're supposed to sleep. 
Hello, we're supposed to sleep. He made us that way. Every day has a little Sabbath, and every week ought to have a little Sabbath, and every season ought to have a little Sabbath, and every year ought to have a little Sabbath. You call it a fall break, or a spring break, or a, or a vacation, or a, or a Sunday, or a Saturday, whatever. You ought to have some Sabbath. But the idea of the sundown to sunset, Sabbath day on a specific day, you got to keep this or you're not spiritual, that is done in Jesus. So in Colossae, evidently, there were some people who were new believers, and they were saying, great, now you have to keep the Sabbath. And what, hey, with sundown at this day, till sundown, you got to make sure you do this, and it's got to be this day every day. It's the Sabbath day. I want to make sure you hear me clearly. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and we are to practice Sabbath. But we don't keep a Sabbath day in order to be right with God. We're right with God through Jesus. So Paul is saying those things were a shadow of the things that come, but now we have the reality found in Christ. I love that. So do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels, evidently they had a lot of trouble in Colossae. They had the people who were meddling, hey, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't drink that, don't be happy, don't, don't enjoy yourself, don't enjoy kissing your spouse too much, don't, 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 don't be happy. Be miserable. That's more spiritual. And they had Judaism creeping in. Oh, you got to keep the Old Testament stuff. But they also had these people who kind of developed this secret knowledge. Like, oh, I'm glad that you're reading your Bible app um, three times a week. That's awesome. How, how cute is that? Um, I have been uh, communing with Gabriel, the archangel. And here's what I had in my moment with, with Gabriel. Here's the shimmering glory I saw in my moment with Michael, the archangel. And, and they had some, some, some really interesting people on the recording. I'm doing air quotes, if you can't tell. Uh, interesting people who were like, oh, it's good that you're doing those things. We're next level. You're JV. We're varsity. And Paul says, don't let those people with their false humility, their worship of angels, disqualify you. For such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, and they are puffed up. And that's a negative. They're prideful. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. And they have lost connection with the head. Who's the head? Christ gotten off track. Let me manage how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to dress, what you're supposed to eat and not eat, and how you're supposed to parent and all those things. Oh, you should keep the festivals. The festivals are what it's all about. You should keep these celebrations and these laws and these rules. Oh, let me just tell you about the angels. The angels. And all of a sudden, we're way off track from finding all we need in the life of Jesus. And let me remind you about Jesus, our head. Not only is he the perfect shepherd, the perfect leader, but he is waters of life and all who drink of him will not thirst in their souls. And it is so tempting to get off track. And may, may it be true of us as a church 
that the biggest deal in our church at any given time is always Jesus. Not what the pastor thinks he's discovered in Habakkuk about the evils of kale. And it's probably in there. Not what one teacher has discovered in their quiet time moments around some special spiritual experiences. We want to drink from the fountain of life whose name is Jesus. And those who get distracted and disrupt, they've lost the connection with the head. And I'm not just talking about learning from Jesus. I'm also talking about being overcome by Jesus, in love with Jesus. Because I think one of the most beautiful things that happens for Christians as we grow up in Christ is that we become more affectionate for Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, we don't just have this reverence and awe, but we have this thing that just kind of becomes a tender touch in our heart. Sin had left a crimson stain. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. I was dead. I was filthy. And I didn't deserve it. And I was so dishonoring to him. And he washed it white as snow. If you do not deepen your affection from, for Jesus by spending time with Jesus, you will drift into things that don't matter. So study to find knowledge, yes, so that you can praise bigger and love more deeply. Have deep private moments. Get into solitude. Practice retreats. Get into these moments where you have deep, tearful, amazing, powerful, wonderful experiences of worship or on your knees with the Lord. Go for it. It's awesome. But make sure it's connected to the head. Make sure it's connected to Jesus. <coughs> They've lost connection with the head. And Paul's writing, just to point all that out, from which the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20. So since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, they're based on merely human commands and teachings. Let's stop there for a minute. Here in this verse, Paul says, verse 20, he's reminding, why are you getting bound up again in regulations and law? You died to that. You died to human systems of trying to be right with God. That's, you're dead to that. That's not your life anymore. Christ is your life now. Grace is your life now. Since you died to that, why are you still acting like you're a part of it? So this is really beautiful. I love that. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae is partly for those who might be hearing the letter read from Paul. 
Who are some of those who got off track? And they're going, ooh, we need to get back on track. We lost connection with the head. But the letter's also for the rest of the people. Hey, you're missing out on the freedom Jesus died for. Stop listening to the crazy people. And live in grace. Why, as if you still belong to the world, are you submitting to these rules? Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, or you will not be right with God. And then he finishes. And I'm almost ready to start the sermon. Here we go. <laughs> For these, verse, verse 22, these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. And such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. For some reason, it, it just, that's how they take root in a church is because they sound a little bit true. Oh, yeah, I should have deeper experiences. Yeah, deeper sounds good, right? I, oh, yeah, we should deny ourselves, right? We, sh we should, we, maybe we shouldn't have a TV in our house. Maybe, maybe we should. And I'm not saying you should. Uh, what, what I'm saying is, is that don't let anybody tell you that you need to do an external thing to be right with God. You're right with God through Jesus. And Paul said, the, these things, they, they do indeed have a hint or they do indeed sound a little bit like something of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. That's that asceticism I was referring to. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You can not eat sugar and not watch TV and that won't stop you from being a sinful person. You can buy plastic diapers or recycle diapers or use cloth diapers and that won't stop you from being a sinful person. You can choose to drink a glass of wine every once in a while or not ever touch alcohol, but neither one of those things will make you a spiritual person who stops sinning. The external has no power for your internal battle. Paul's trying to teach them something here. And then I, I want you to know as, as, as your pastor and shepherd and friend this week, just this huge switch flipped in my heart when I read this, this last part of the verse. All of these things, these do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, all of these external things, these things of self-denial, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And when I read that, I'm, I thought, oh my gosh, that's like somebody saying they're not at all helpful to, to find the Holy Grail. You, well, okay, time out. You just said it's not at all helpful to find the Holy Grail. Wait a minute. Where's the Holy Grail? I want the Holy Grail. You, you know where the Holy Grail is? I want that. I need that. I had the same reaction when I read this verse here. They're not at all helpful for restraining sensual indulgence. Because anybody else with me this morning, that is the story of my spiritual life, the battle with sensual indulgence. Anybody else? Restraining myself for things that may be bad that I should not partake of or things that are good, but I shouldn't partake too much of those things. Restraining my own sensual indulgence. That's almost like someone just said, they're not helpful for finding the Holy Grail. Wait, you know where the Holy Grail is? Paul says, they're not helpful for restraining sensual indulgence. And I sit up straight and I go, wait a minute, you know where that is? 
I need that. Anybody else with me this morning? Hello, that's my story. Maybe you're like me and this cycle looks familiar to you. I'm going to put this cycle up on the screen this morning. Maybe this looks familiar to you. This cycle of indulgence is, is, is something that, that is true in a lot of our lives, that we struggle with a, a temptation. And then there's a little negotiation that's going on. It, it's kind of a sales pitch from the enemy. You really want this. You really need this. This will feel good. You'll be glad you did. This will be awesome. This is what you're missing. You deserve it. People have been mean to you. This will feel good. You're lonely. This will feel good. This is something. You're bitter. This will feel good. Go for this. There's this negotiation that goes on. And then there's a moment of indulgence. When you say yes to the enemy's sales pitch. And you say yes to sin. And then ultimately, in that cycle, there is regret and, everybody say it with me, shame. Which sounds like, oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't. And I said I would never do that again. And man, why do I keep ending up here? And oh, I feel so terrible. And oh, I'm embarrassed. And then that leads us to a sense of I'm worthless and there's an emptiness. And guess that what that emptiness leads you looking for something to fill up the emptiness. So then the enemy is very, very, very willing to tempt you with some things that might fill up your emptiness. And all of a sudden you're in the battle again. Does that look familiar to anybody? And Paul just told us that all the external stuff... All of our, our attempts to restrict our, our behavior will have absolutely zero effect in restraining our sinful indulgence, our sensual indulgence. So, oh my gosh, how do we how do, we do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. That's what chapter 3 is all about, so you're going to need to come back next Sunday for that. And I'm not joking. That is where we're headed next Sunday. But my pastor's heart broke for you and also for me this morning as I thought, oh my goodness, if how much of our lives, how many years of our lives have been spent in this cycle where we have felt less than free and we're not living in the freedom that Jesus has provided for our sin because we live in this cycle of temptation and shame and indulgence. Let's talk about sensual indulgence just for a few minutes this morning. Sensual indulgence is, is a situation where there are some things in life that are bad, they're ungodly, things that are unhealthy and inappropriate, and then you engage in those things. But sensual indulgence is also true that there are things that are good, and you overindulge in those things. Three Oreos is delightful. Three columns or rows of Oreos might be sensual indulgence. And see, I think this is so important to use that as an illustration this morning. <clears throat> what Paul would say is, Colossae, there are not to be any Oreo police in your church. Let people... Be called to honoring God and not indulge themselves sensually. But the first time you say seven Oreos is the line. 
And if someone just eats seven, all of a sudden they feel so good about themselves. Look at me. I'm a seven Oreo guy. You're a seven Oreo God guy? That's cute. I'm a two Oreo guy. And all of a sudden, pride creeps in. Your external attempts have no power to restrain your sensual indulgence because as soon as you say, I limit myself, now you're prideful. One of my classic illustrations for this is uh, I, I worked with a lot of teenagers for a lot of years and a lot of college students, and one of the struggles with them, certainly not with adults, is to struggle with lust, right? Adults don't struggle with that, right? Ha, ha, ha. The students would come to me, and, and the picture that would be given was like, like, I struggle in the summertime at the beach because this guy would say, these girls are just wearing these bikinis, and oh, man, I just... I'm, I'm struggling with lust. And so the guy would say, so I'm just not going to the beach anymore. I'm just cutting out the beach. That has a sound of wisdom. But has he addressed his sin? No. All he's done is removed the trigger. He's not dealt with his heart. So external behavior, I'm not watching TV anymore. I'm not getting on the internet anymore. Good luck with that one, by the way. I'm not going to the beach anymore. That sounds like wisdom, but you've not dealt with your hard heart. You've not dealt with your sinful. You can say, I'm never going to the beach again, and I will tell you today that lust will still knock on your door. It's not about the beach it's about how you view women. It's about your view of what sex is all about. Which, by the way, is where we're going next Sunday. Sensual indulgence. Let's, let me run through some things here. You and I need to figure out how to restrain sensual indulgence for several reasons. The first one is, is it pulls us from our mission. It pulls us from our mission. Some of us are so chained to this cycle right now that Satan has taken you out of the game. You're not walking in the joy of the Lord. You're not displaying the glory of God on your campus and in your workplace. You're not talking to people about Jesus because you've lost connection with the head. You're caught up in, in indulgence in this cycle of sin and, and shame, and, and, and it has taken you out of the mission. Some of you have, are, are struggling in the grip of sin at such a level right now that you've, you've not invited anybody to church. You're not talking to anybody about Jesus. You're not really praying. You're, it's taken you out. You're on the bench in the mission of God. We need to get a grip on sensual indulgence. Number two, because if we don't, it keeps us under a cloud of shame. And let me tell you something. Jesus Christ died to free you from the shame of sin. He took it all upon himself. He took your shame. And shame is when you're invited to believe something that's not true about you. 
Shame is when you're invited to believe you're less than a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Shame is when you want to hide. Shame is when you're told for what you just did, God doesn't love you anymore. Or you can't climb up in his lap today because of what you did. And that's a lie. We got we to figure out how to restrain sensual indulgence. Number three, because it corrupts our thinking about our freedom. Friends, the phrase, everything in moderation is false. Yes, you are free in Jesus, but there are some things that you're not free in because the Bible has been clear about those. There are some things in the world that are unhealthy and ungodly. Freedom doesn't mean license. Freedom doesn't mean everything in moderation. We must be people of thought and conviction, which is where next Sunday's going. We need to restrain our sensual indulgence because it robs us of health and rest and sleep. Some of us have overindulged in food and we are unhealthy. We are not honoring God's, God with our bodies. Some of us have overindulged in Fortnite and Call of Duty and we are not sleeping. And it's a crisis because your grades are suffering, your work is suffering. Some of you have overindulged in Netflix. <laughs> I was thinking about this yesterday. You know, in, in alcohol consumption, there's a blood alcohol level. If you get past this point, what is it in Tennessee? 0. 0.08? Who knows? We don't know. It's probably good. Stay way away from that. Don't you wish there was some sort of like entertainment level that you could know? Like, oh, one more episode and I've crossed the line. I am Netflix buzzed if I, if I watch one more episode. You get the little hint. If you've ever seen the message on Netflix that says, are you still watching? Let me tell you, the line's way back there. So, so how many episodes? Nope. No. Because external human rules have no power. This is what Paul is teaching us. But if we don't restrain it, it will really corrupt our thinking about our freedom. It will really rob us of health and rest and sleep. I'm so concerned about a generation of young people right now who are so locked into hours of video and YouTube it's not necessarily even the content. It's the fact that they're getting three or three and a half hours of sleep at night. And by the time they hit 40, their body's not going to be right. And their grades are suffering and their work is going to suffer. It's, it's a problem. And it's not about Netflix and YouTube and gaming. It's about limiting good things. Two more we need to learn how to restrain sensual indulgence because sensual indulgence encourages the development of powerful secrets. Sensual indulgence encourages the development of powerful secrets. There are some of us 
in the room right now who are under a cloud of shame inside a vault of a secret where you are absolutely terrified that someone's going to find out that you indulge in blank. And the enemy uses that secret to threaten you, to terrorize you, to shame you, to cause you to live in fear. And he has made you absolutely forget that Jesus broke the grip of sin on your life. And so when we sin now, it is a choice. And you do not have to live in the dark secret. You do not have to live in the grip of shame because of Jesus. And then lastly, we need to deal with this sensual indulgence. We gotta figure out how to restrain it. Because we're living in something less than what Jesus paid for. I want to honor the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen? I want to say my Jesus stood on top of the defeated enemy with glowing sword. (laughs) Hair blowing. Not literally. I'm just talking about victory moment. Just victory moment. I want to celebrate that. I want to honor that. And I don't want to live in something less than that. Some of us are snuggling up to dead things that Jesus already defeated. And we're settling for life that is not life. We're in this cycle of temptation and negotiation and indulgence and then shame and emptiness and looking for something else to fill. And Jesus died for you to be free. And my good news for you this morning, friends, is is if you're in the cycle, if you're in a cloud of, of shame, if you're in a vault of secrets, you can absolutely be set free today in Jesus Christ. And some of that needs to come by repentance. Some of that needs to come to Jesus where you humble yourself before him and you say, I have chosen to walk these roads. I have chosen to indulge in these things and I am sorry because there's no life here and it's not your best for me and it's not right. Some of it starts with humility and repentance and saying, Jesus, I don't want to live in this way anymore. I want out of this cycle. You see, the cycle represents a truth. For some of us in the room, We are walking with Jesus on a regular basis. And a special occasion is when we indulge in sin. But for others of us, our everyday experience is walking in sin. And on special occasions, we turn our hearts back to the Lord a little bit. My hope and call for you this morning is that you would do business with God and that you would repent and turn and cry out to Him to help you live free. That you would confess to Him the secret shame. That you would figure out how to restrain sensual indulgence, which is where we're going next Sunday. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and get us ready to, lead, to sing. And I want to encourage you to do a little bit of business with God in this moment. If you're here this morning 
and you've yet to believe in Jesus, if you've yet to follow him as his disciple, to ask him to forgive your sins, I'm asking you to do that this morning, to do that today. And here, here's why. Because religion cannot save you. That's what we've just studied this morning. Trying to be a good boy or a good girl, to do good things, cannot change the inside. It cannot save. It cannot make you right with God. Jesus died for you. And God raised him from the dead. And if you'll believe in Jesus and become his disciples, choose to follow Jesus today. Maybe you even want to indicate that on your little card here that today you're choosing to follow Jesus. We'd love to celebrate that with you. So that's one thing. Religion cannot save you. For the rest of us who already know Jesus, religion cannot change you. church attendance doing good acts self-denial that will have no power over the sinful indulgence Jesus can do that we're going to sing in just a minute but I'm going to ask if you guys would just play for a second to not get distracted by the song but just while you're in your spot. Some of you need to have a moment with God right now about the indulgence, about the honoring God with your body, with your mind, with your eyes, with your time, with your money, about the secrets, about the shame. Bow your head, close your eyes, have a, have a moment with God, you and God. What do you need to say to Him this morning?